Hello and welcome to Personalized Learning with Matt and Courtney. My name is Matt. <laughs> My name is Courtney. Where have you been, Courtney? Ah, yeah. <laughs> right? Where have you been, Matt? Yeah, we have taken some time off. We did. So who are we again? What do we do? <laughs> we, <laughs> all of you new listeners and probably your old listeners who uh, haven't heard us in a while, uh, we talk about the do-dos and don't-dos of personalized learning. Yep. Yeah. And we, we branch off a little bit now and then into adjacent and related topics. But for the most part, if it is about personalized learning and what's worth doing, what's not worth doing, what makes sense, what doesn't make sense and how to do it, we are your people. We, so, have, uh, we have been doing this for a very, very long time. And then we yeah. to take the fall off. <laughs> I can't, we can't say it was like a, you know, conscious decision. There was mm-hmm. never a point where Matt and I uh, said to one another, hey, let's take four months off. But roughly what happened was uh, life kind of fell apart a little bit on mm-hmm. my ends. Matt's, Matt's world, I mean, he can speak for himself, but he, in a good way, professionally got insanely busy. Mm-hmm. Way too busy. <laughs> <laughs> So maybe it, it went past being good into not being good. And uh... <laughs> a little bit, a little bit, but, it was, but it we're was back. Just, it was just the time we needed some time and yeah. uh, get our lives back together. And now, uh, now we're back and you're not going to be able to get rid of us. So that's right. That's so ha. <laughs> <laughs> Jokes on you listeners. We're that's back. That's right. <laughs> you you were all like some of you were like are you you're not ever going to put out another podcast <laughs> yes and uh the answer is yes, yes. we and, are uh, we even <laughs> for some reason have plans on what we're going to be doing so we do. uh we're going to prep some of these today we're going to talk about uh an article that came out about from edutopia about different uh research studies about schools and then yeah. over the next few weeks we're going to dig into each one of these that we kind of touch on today. Yeah. So I think um, I stumbled upon this in the past week or so where I I was doing some research myself on assessment um, and accountability of school districts. So like measuring the quality of school districts, right? I'm involved in some work around that here in Maine and was just doing doing some looking around because I'm a firm believer in having and knowing the research to back up your opinions. Um, Makes sense. I think it is something that we, we talk about. You hear that phrase, the research says a lot. Uh, I do think it's a good idea to actually know what that research is. And as uh, leaders in the education field, I think it's important that we stay on top of the research Mm -hmm. that, is coming out 100%. There are a lot of times, maybe more times than I wish were true, where like the best research to support our thinking is research that is still, that is like 20 years old, right? But it doesn't mean it's bad research. It's just the truth that we figured some things out a while ago Mm -hmm. and it's just still taking time to catch up. But anyway, Something that Edutopia does is uh, they put out at the end of every year, and I'm not entirely sure how long this goes back, uh, 
they put out the 10 most significant education studies of the year. And they summarize and give you links to 10 research studies about education that had some kind of important impact or like the, the potential for some important impact in the future. So I thought we could look at 2021's list. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Okay. So the first one uh, we want to like uh, touch on today, it's called, uh, uh, the headline for this is The Surprising Power of Pretesting. Yeah. So this is number three on the list. Mm -hmm. And if we were live with you all right now, I would do something crazy, like take a minute and have you talk to the person next to you about why you think Matt and Courtney would highlight this particular research study. (laughs) That is true. That is true. You would. You would. So you have all heard us talk a lot. We don't call it, I don't think we call it pre-testing, right? (laughs) It's been so long. What do we call it? I don't think we call it pre-testing. We don't call it pre-testing. Pre-assessment, I think is what we call it. Pre-assessment, I think it's just is fancier version because we're like that. Because it doesn't have to be a test. That's why I think, I think that's the, the what we were, we've always talked about, and I think that's a key that it doesn't have to be a test, right? Because it, right, I'm going to read this very first sentence in the article, and this yeah, is do it. this is the thing. Uh, the the article says, asking students to take a practice test before they've even encountered the material may seem like a waste of time. After all, they'd just be guessing. Well, but I guess have, what, Matt? I have seen a lot of those practice tests. And it it doesn't have to be a test, right? No, no, it doesn't have to be a test. So, But sometimes they're not guessing because they already know it. Depends on how you give it, I think. Okay, fair. I I think, but I think you're you're absolutely right. Sometimes they already know it. So if we can design different types of assessments that are not tests, Right. Then I think we're going to be winning the battle of pretesting at this point. And now we have some research to support that. Yeah. So here's kind of the gist of the research. I absolutely love it. Like, so, um, so it concludes that uh, the approach that they call pretesting is more effective than other typical study strategies. Right. So as far as, um, um, Achievement on the fight, like the the later test, right, mm-hmm. um, is how they're measuring this. Um, so that the students who took the pretests uh, outperformed their peers who who didn't take the test or used other methods, other study methods that did not include a pretest. And so their hypothesis as to why, so they don't, I don't think they've explained why, but right, this is what they think why, and this backs up what I think why. <laughs> Uh, the researchers hypothesized that the, quote, generation of errors, unquote, was a key to the strategy's success, spurring student curiosity and priming them to search for the correct answers. So what it what they're saying here is when the students took that pretest and saw what they got wrong, it sparked their interest in, oh, my gosh, I don't know this. I want to know this now. It made them ask questions and want to find the answers to those questions. So it, it sparked like um, internal motivation, intrinsic motivation to learn. And they learned whatever it was they were going to learn more efficiently and effectively than had they never had that. Um, 
I love that. Yeah. Right there. I love that right there. And I think that really shows the difference between a practice test mm -hmm. and a practice like a, a, or a pre-assessment, sorry, a pre-test and yes. a pre-assessment because a test, a pre-test, you know, like the first thing that pops to mind, uh, there is no way kids are going to be like, Hey, I want to know what this is. If you think of what like a typical pre-test looks like, answer these questions, match these things up. Uh, tell me about what you know about X. It's like boring, boring, boring. So if you make your pre-assessment really kind of engaging, there's a skill to that, obviously. There's, there's going to be a skill to that. For sure. Uh, but I love what they're talking about there is it sparks interest and curiosity. Right. And once you have that, you're well on your way. Yeah. To learning at that point. Right. Right. Okay. Okay. I love this one, by the way. Great choice. Yeah, that's a good one. So we will we will spend some more time in a future episode talking more about that. Yep. Um, so the next one is number five on the list that we're going to highlight. And by all means, they're all great. These are the three we're talking about are the ones that are like, they're clearly in the personalized learning wheelhouse. Mm -hmm. um, all right. So number five, a fuller picture of what a quote, good school is. So this research study, I love. Uh, because it, I mean, they, I love all of these because they, they bolster my personal beliefs, right? But, um, good to know. So this, <laughs> what? Good to know. Good to know. I mean, that's also, that's why I do the podcast. Yeah. All right. So Not the second be. paragraph here, the study looked at over 150,000 ninth grade students who attended Chicago public schools and concluded that emphasizing the social and emotional dimensions of learning relationship building, sense of belonging and resilience, for example, those are not all of them, those are some of them, improves high school graduation rates and college matriculation rates for both high and low income students, beating out schools that focus primarily on improving test scores. That's huge. And you all hear us say repeatedly that culture comes first. Mm -hmm. Social emotional learning is a piece of culture. Mm -hmm. And so this one study, and I know there are many other studies out here, but this is one that happened in this past year in a large district um, with a large amount of diversity, um, widespread of socioeconomic statuses. And, and this is what it says. We, we need to stop. If we're going to measure schools and say whether they're quote good schools or quote bad schools, um, the traditional measure of just academic scores is highly problematic and a much more effective way to go about it in terms of um, graduation rate and college matriculation is measuring and focusing on social emotional learning. I think the part that I like best about this paragraph or about this uh, kind of overview of this is that it also improves high school graduation and college matriculation rates for high income students, not just low income students or medium rates, because yeah. some of the, some of the pushback that I get some time when we're talking about culture being like the key to everything, it's like, well, it's all about helping the kids that really can't do school, right. In quotation marks there, mm -hmm. but what, but what about the kids who really want to go to college and really focus on those test scores? I was like, well, why wouldn't it be good for them also? 
Right. That, that literally makes no sense to me. And now we have a study showing that exact same thing that we can. Yeah. So that part of it, I love more than anything, because again, you're mm-hmm. right. It does reinforce our beliefs. So, and that's always a good thing too. <laughs> <laughs> I love that one. That one's going to be really good. That one's yeah. So really we will talk good. more about that one too. All right, Matt, what's the third one we want to touch on? Today? Our last one is the last one on the list is uh, number nine on the list that we're going to talk about today. And mm-hmm. uh, it talks about new research makes a powerful case for project-based learning. Mm-hmm. This one interests me when you brought this one up to me, because I always have uh, a little red flag in my head about project, project-based learning. And we mm-hmm. kind of discussed this a little bit before the pod, but uh, before we get into the study a little bit, some of my hesitations are, is it's all about how you set up the projects right? And how kids are organized and what they're working on and how it's done in the long-term compared to the other things that you're doing. Right. Uh, So you can easily miss a lot of things with project-based learning unless you're super organized. Uh, So now, so I'm really excited to see what this is going to to talk about here. So can you lead us through that? Yeah. So um, (laughs) the first sentence is, I love it. Uh, Many classrooms today still look like they did 100 years ago when students were preparing for factory jobs. Boom. Yeah. Uh, So um, modern careers demand a more sophisticated set of skills. Collaboration, advanced problem solving, and creativity, for example. So project-based learning is one way And there is a very traditional, I'm not traditional, but there is a specific quote, project-based learning, unquote, model. You can also use project-based learning as a very broad model, right? A broad term to mean anything that is really interdisciplinary, problem-based, like hands-on, like it can mean a lot of things, which is what goes to the point Matt was making Mm -hmm. um, about his hesitations around this. my, so this one has a very, you can go in and see the actual methods they used. The different projects were very well set up, a lot of learner agency, kind of what you would want to see in a high quality project-based learning yep. experience. Um, so the different ones, uh, it was a range, it was elementary and high school students. The range of projects included designing water systems for local farms, creating toys using simple household objects. Um, That's kind of, so you can think of that range from high school to elementary school. And that quote, subsequent testing revealed notable learning gains well above those experienced by students in traditional classrooms. And those gains seemed to raise all boats persisting across socioeconomic class, race, and reading levels. So, further evidence that that type of interdisciplinary um, problem solving, collaborative learning leads to stronger uh, gains in academic performance. So I'm all for it. I'm all for it. These things make total sense. And I am hoping that with our, our, you know, our future podcasts here, we'll be able to help spread that word a little bit about this mm. is what, this is what good teaching can look like to make better schools that your kids actually want to go to, even in hopefully in COVID times where we are on and off remote learning, 
in-person learning happen. It's, it's all over the place. And I don't think yeah. that's going away literally anytime soon. <laughs> I remember talking a couple of years ago that, yeah, you know, when everything gets back to relative normal, uh, and that seems approximately like 5,000 years ago at this point. So mm-hmm. I, I think this is just the way it is now. So yep. having things like project-based learning does not necessarily require you to be in the same classroom all the time. Right. There, there are many ways you can set up those projects among all kinds of different kids learning about different standards and targets that you can kind of divvy up the roles so if I'm at home or if I'm in school or if I'm in my group or if I'm in my Zoom meeting, how does that all work? I think that's wonderful and cha- it's challenging. Obviously, all yeah. of these things are challenging. None of these are like, hey, okay, let's adopt this and things are going to be great. Uh, but I, I really like the idea, especially when we talk about the gains in these different studies, it doesn't matter who you are. Uh, this last one talks about, as I right. said, socioeconomic yeah. class, race, reading levels. I'm sure it doesn't mention gender, but I'm sure that's in there too. Mm-hmm. It's just mm-hmm. like, obviously these things are working. Let's start doing some of those things and figuring how it works for you in your individual school or district. Yeah. Let's just do those things. Let's just do it. Let's just do it. What we're going to do in the next few weeks is dig into each <laughs> one of these different studies. Yeah. And get, get some more details. Uh, this is just a high level overview as we try to figure out. Uh, in since we've been four months off, uh, my biggest struggle was like, where's the record button? So, <laughs> <laughs> so I think now that we're past that, we can get back to normal here. Excellent. All right. 